Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I can sit down with friends old and new and have honest conversations. Today, I am so happy to welcome to the front part, front porch, Lauren Grimm. Uh, Lauren, I was thinking about this. I truly believe, after having some thoughts, that you are my oldest female friend. I, I don't have any female friends that I've known longer than you. So Outlast. <laughs> welcome to the front porch, Lauren, and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dougie. <laughs> uh, we can tell the audience here, Dougie. Boy, not too many people call me that anymore. That's fine. No, that's fine. That's fine. Listen, I learned your name in kindergarten. I wired those neurons and I can't undo it. Right. Um, sorry, I don't learn new things. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, let's start. Yeah, let's start at the beginning. Um, I usually have all my guests kind of tell a little bit about, you know, how where they grew up and uh, did they have brothers and sisters? What kind of things did they do as a kid? Uh, and that'll kind of set the foundation for what we're going to talk about later. Yeah, um, I'm Berks County born and raised. And uh, I have a my family is not in Berks County anymore. My family's now in the Harrisburg area. My mom and my dad and my brother um, all live out in the Harrisburg area now. But I try to get back to Berks County when I can because uh, I miss it. You know, you know that it's a really unique place. It's got a unique culture and food and music and uh, a lot of my old friends. Right. So I'm going to hopefully get back there soon. And uh Yeah. So these are some of the things I remember about you growing up uh, throughout. I mean, we, we've been friends a long time. As, as Lauren said, we know each other since kindergarten. And we, we many years we rode the bus together uh, to school and after school. What happens but I remember, on the bus stays on the bus. We're not going to talk about the bus, that's for sure. <laughs> um, the other day we were talking and a, a mutual friend of ours was sharing some old photos. And I had remembered this about you that at, at a very young age, you, you played soccer. And when we were looking at some of these photos, I noticed in the picture that you were one of the few girls on the team. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, for sure. I, I think about this a lot, actually, because there's been a common thread throughout um, my life of being one of the only girls in the room. And it's, uh, it's odd to have that as a superpower. I didn't intend for that to be <laughs> a superpower. But um, yeah, I, I started playing soccer as the only girl on the team. And um, I wanted to beat everybody. Man, I was competitive as a little kid. I wanted to be the best on the team. I wanted to whip up on everybody. Um, and it was fun. You know, I didn't think much of it at the time. And I went to college at Carnegie Mellon, which is... Um, has a really um, lopsided student body. It's uh, mostly dudes. <laughs> and, um, and now I work in an industry where I am uh, frequently the only woman in the room, very frequently. And uh, yeah, so I think about that a lot, but I, I, I do think that the soccer team was good preparation for that, I guess. <laughs> Again, not intentional, but you know. Right. I I wanted to, I was hoping that this theme would come out as, as I was thinking about the, the types of questions I wanted to ask you tonight, even going back to that young age when you were, you know, elementary school and you were that only girl on the soccer team, you said you wanted, you know, it was your competitive, the competitiveness in you that you wanted to beat everybody. Do you feel that that streak is still in you today? 
you know, um, yeah, although I think I turn it inward now. I hope I hope I do anyway. I try to uh, in that I just kind of want to beat um, my own expectations of what I can do, I guess I'd say. Uh, I'm really, as an adult, I'm not a competitive person in terms of things like playing games or, um, I mean, my kids will be the first to tell you, I ruin games by not being competitive enough. <laughs> We're all just here for fun, Doug. It doesn't matter. You got your mom <laughs> pants on now. <laughs> That's right. And I don't want to hear any crying. If anyone's feelings get hurt, we are shutting this down. <laughs> Well, growing up, not only were you active in athletics, but you also struck that balance with music and art, which were huge parts of your lives, life as well. When did those types of, you know, when did you start getting involved in music? I know you played piano starting pretty young, I would think. Um, and then you got involved. I remember vividly as a child, you know, seeing and watching you draw. That was one thing that I always was impressed by because I couldn't draw. Uh, and then a lot of my friends were super artistic. And that was one of those things I was like, man, Lauren can really draw. And then she can turn and really play piano. So when did those types, when did you start to um, discover that that side of you? Oh, you're, you're sweet. I, um, well, I started playing piano when I was five and, uh, I hated it so much. I hated practicing. Uh, my mom used to put the, like an egg timer on the old spinet that we had in the living room. And, uh, I had to practice for half an hour every day. Um, and I would get so angry about this that I would play because she'd be in the other room listening to make sure I was playing. I would play while biting the piano, like, so the above the music stand right there, I would just lean over and sink my nasty little child teeth into the varnish of the piano. So years later, when my parents decided to get rid of this spinet, they finally kind of noticed like, what is all of this damage? It looks like a wild animal got to this piano. And it was years of me angry biting the stupid piano. And uh, you could actually tell where I got my braces because my teeth marks got nice and straight. Um, and <laughs> I feel like a jerk now because I'm actually really happy that they persisted and made me practice. I'm really happy about it, but I must have been just a little stinker. I just must have been the worst. That's one of the um, things I'm going through with my daughter right now because she's <laughs> taking violin lessons and she she also, she's not biting her violin. However, uh, <laughs> get, getting her to practice is is a struggle um, that we're working with. And uh, we're, we're hoping that she's also going to come to the realization later on in life, like you did that, mm -hmm. that boy, I'm really glad yeah. mom and dad made me, yeah. made me do that. Um, yeah. Don't, don't let her get a bite of that violin. Cause once you feel how toothsome it is to sink your teeth into varnished wood, uh, no Dixon Ticonderoga is ever going to suit again. So. <laughs> Duly noted. Duly noted. Um, so we'll fast forward a little bit. We're into high school and, and we're all really involved in music and art and theater. And, you know, yeah. we, um, the one thing I that. There's I, something in the water there, Doug. Honestly, you guys are all so talented. I, I'm always amazed that my friend group from high school, you guys are like some of the most talented people that I've ever met. And you all came in one clump from the same area and the same time. It's must have been something in the water. Honestly. You know, I was, I, I, I don't know about that, but I was going to ask you your thoughts because I've already a couple of the, our other dear friends have been guests on the show, and every one of them has kind of said exactly the same thing that you just said. In your opinion, looking back, what do you what do you think it was? I mean, yeah, we could say, oh, maybe there was something in the water. All right, um, dude, I do not know. I wonder about this all the time, though, because you guys regularly impress me with um, your musical ability and. 
all the different hobbies and, you know, someone's over here building something with wood and someone's over here playing a guitar and usually it's the same person. And I'm just like, Oh my God. And they all cook. You guys all have these wonderful families. You have all these different skill sets and my God, Doug, you're a busy guy. You do a million different things. Um, and I'm always just so impressed. Yeah. I, I need to step up my game to hang out well, with you guys. Honestly. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. You're very successful too. I think, and I've thought a lot about this. Uh, it speaks to the power of friends that support each other. Um, I, 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 when I look back on, on our friendships and, and, and you and my friendship, particularly throughout all of high school and even after high school, when we kind of moved away and went to college all over the place and started families, we have continually for the last 38, 40 years supported each other. And I think that says a lot about, uh, you know, the power of that more than anything else, in my opinion. I think so too. And I think that we also had some adults in our life who gave us space to be creative, you mm. know? Um, and to goof off just enough that we were able to investigate kind of creative interests and passions without always being nose to the grindstone and not to goof off so much that we were ever in risk of jeopardizing our futures. But we had a lot of really great teachers and, you know, great parents who gave us just enough leash. I, yeah, you, I agree with you 100 percent. I was going to yeah, I, I often have this conversation with the students that I teach in high school. Now, I give them opportunity to to play. And a lot of my colleagues don't understand that. They, th mm. I, I, well, why aren't you sticking to the curriculum? It's not that I'm not sticking to the curriculum. It, there is an important aspect, even at 17, 18 year old. I think even more than I'm a, I'm a proponent for uh, high school level recess. In all honesty, oh, yeah. I, 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 think, I think it belongs. Um, but you see the creativity happen when you allow them to be. The, you know, be silly every once in a while. Do you still find that now as a as an adult in a very challenging career, the importance of taking time to be creative? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was um, uh, just to tell you a story from uh, work last week. I was um, out in the uh, Mojave Desert and I was rolling around um with a munition that I've been designing, kind of just testing it out, seeing how it looked in the terrain, that kind of thing. And there's no real reason that I need to be scrambling through the desert up a mountainside to, you know, pretend that I'm a soldier from an observation point, looking back at, um, you know, my device. Uh, but it, it actually started my creativity thinking because it was just that moment of um, putting myself in someone else's shoes putting myself in what their viewpoint would be that all of a sudden we got all these creative ideas about better ways to help. Um, and it all came from just taking um, a couple extra minutes that weren't on the schedule to uh, just kind of try to be someone else for a minute, just being silly. And we were just goofing around. I mean, it's fun to like walk through the desert, catch some sun. I was looking out for snakes. I was having a grand time, you know, going back to uh, those of us who grew up in the woods in Berks County, you know, I, I like to just go hiking through the, the back country a little bit, <laughs> uh, but it was a great moment. It wasn't it wasn't uh, something I had to officially do, but we did it and it was really cool. You, you've kind of precursored where I wanted to take the, the, the conversation next. We're going to rewind just a little bit. I'm glad you talked a little bit about your job. We're going to come back to that for sure. Um, but you did already mention that, you know, you went to school at Carnegie Mellon, a, a, a traditionally male heavy uh, university. Uh, but, and, uh, I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about how you made the change from, because when you went, uh, as a freshman, you were, what was your, was your uh, major uh, 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 fine art, fine art, 
Yeah. Right. So yeah. at some point in your four years at Carnegie Mellon, you totally, and in my mind, you did a 180 and went oh, yeah, and ended yeah. up with a degree in? Well, no, I'm, I'm, my degree is in uh, writing, actually. So I kind of, I went to the technical side of it, but it's still actually writing. Uh, so yeah, it, it is really funny, though, because when I, I'm you know talking to people at cocktail parties and they ask what I do, and I say that I'm in the defense industry and that I design tools for soldiers they ask, how did you get started with that? And I tell them, honestly, you go to art school, <laughs> which, which is not a real answer. Um, I, as soon as I got out to Carnegie Mellon, I realized that I was just heavily outgunned by the talent in their art department. And these were kids who were just amazing. And there's, you know, when you start to look at the reality of how much student debt you're accruing, and you look around you and you see that you're not one of the standout talents in your program. You have to start to think, you know, practically. And I, I do feel like that's my Pennsylvania Dutch background. We are pragmatic people, <laughs> As, even though we are creative and we are playful and all of that good stuff. There is a core of pragmatism. And uh, so, yeah, I, I started to take computer science classes. Um, and, uh, because, you know, I, around that time at Carnegie Mellon, that was, that was the place in time that I was, it was like, well, this is a computer science school and this is, uh, the boom of that industry. And, uh, so I took all the computing classes that I could and, um, ended up with a major that was essentially, a writing in, a technical writing and supporting for human computer interaction, uh, which is all pretty boring. But after school, I went right out to the Silicon Valley and I got a job with IBM out there on their Silicon Valley campus and uh, got to work on some software and got to uh, my first taste of user testing, which was pretty cool. We had um, we had uh, disabled users coming in and we had a lab. We could test, can they use our software? And uh, so these were folks who were using things like screen reading programs because they weren't able to see well and things like that. And uh, it was a really cool setup. We brought these people in and they had uh, cameras hidden in plants, very cheesy, um, and eye tracking software and keyboard tracking software. And then we sat in the room next door around a big table and analyzed what was working for them, what wasn't working for them, how could we improve it? And at the time I was documenting that, but I started to kind of get this inkling, like, I think that I shouldn't just be writing how these things work. I think that I want to call the shots on how they should work. So, um, yeah, so that's where that started. And uh, Will and I had a couple years in California that were really great. And then we wanted to buy a house. We started looking around and we thought, ooh, you know where you can get a nice house is Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, so we came back to Pennsylvania. Um, I miss California sometimes, but uh, it's really, really easy, we say, to live the good life here, you know, um, to to be able to have money left over for your family and for travel and stuff like that. So I've been in Pittsburgh uh, ever since and uh, got two boys and my husband, and we live in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood out here. And I love it. It's my adopted city. Love it. So now you mentioned about your current job, and I know there are certain things that you aren't allowed to talk about because of various aspects of your job. But so right now you are helping kind of clear me, clear, clear this up for me. You are, you are designing or you help, or you are helping design, as you mentioned, tools for soldiers. What, I am designing. Yes. It's, well, no. What does yeah. that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
it's been a long career. So you're going to have to wave me and stop me if I get boring into the weeds here. I, I don't know what people are interested in. But uh, so I am my job title. I'm a user experience slash information designer. Um, now, UX or user experience design and information design are two very different things, uh, two subsets of design, mostly software and mostly technology. Um, so since they're different in different contexts and different industries, I'll just tell you about my experience uh, as a UX designer. Uh, so again, I work at a big defense contractor company. My primary customer is the U.S. Army, although I worked with allies, uh, private industry, local government, emergency services folks, and nonprofits. Uh, I work on a small team. So there's usually about a dozen engineers, a couple testers, some leadership folks, and me. And uh, right now I'm working on a, a desktop application, which is software used by soldiers, a handheld mobile device, which is basically looks like a phone software for soldiers out in the field. Um, I've worked on vehicle mounted interfaces, which are something that you might have like in the back of your Humvee or uh, other vehicle uh, mounted in there. And then I also work on physical devices, like I'm working on a munition right now. And that is not something that's running software, although it is very highly technical nowadays. Um, and so what I practice is something called human-centered design. And that sounds pretty no-brainer, like, duh. Uh, but basically, that means that I spend a lot of my job finding out exactly what soldiers truly need, not just taking something that we that our engineers found out we could do and trying to jam it into a market where someone will give us money for it. Um, so I spend a lot of time meeting with soldiers. Uh, I spend time on army bases, which are non-glamorous locations generally because <laughs> you know you tend to have army bases out in the middle of nowhere for a lot of reasons um and anyway i try to just understand their uh sop deeply uh sorry their standard operating procedures i'm gonna rattle off acronyms and i'm really sorry just stop me um and a major part of my job is to be the dumbest person in the room and to be okay with that um, i use my interviewing skills uh, from my previous career as a writer and uh, I have to basically just stay, wait, what do you mean by that? Explain that to me. Tell me more about that. And uh, I, I have pulled meetings with a hundred high ranking people and a lot of military brass to a screeching halt because in my line of work, you have to stand up and say, I don't understand that. And I'm willing to look like an idiot, but I need to understand it fully and completely. So well, that is a skill that uh, I'm just thinking about outside of your profession that I think too many people need or, or, or lacking, I guess I should say. I know in education, uh, I always tell my students, if you don't understand something, you have to you have to say something. Do not just sit there and hope that it's going to miraculously, the light bulb's going to go off in your brain. But I think as, I think as humans, we, we don't want to make the scene. We don't want to be the stupid person in the room. Yes. But, but you, <laughs> but you have to do that. So how did, how did you, how did you overcome that? How did you come to the realization or how did you beat that desire to like, oh, uh, I'm not going to say anything, but you I know, need to say something. Ironically, it takes a lot of confidence to be willing to look like an idiot in a room full of people. It really does. Um, and I have a lot of confidence in the fact that I can learn things. I may not be an expert in this today, but in my job, I need to quickly get up to speed in a lot of different uh, topics. And so part of my skill set is being able to drop into a group of people in a context, performing a task, and be able to ask the right kind of questions that I can very quickly spin up on it. And, um, you know, there is a shamelessness to it. Like at the end of the day, I don't really care if people think that I'm an idiot. I'm going to build something amazing for these guys. You know what I mean? 
Oh, there is the competitiveness coming back, though, in my mind. Oh. It's, it's, it's there. It's there. I am a competitive idiot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's possible, man. I don't know. <laughs> how how difficult or intimidating was it for, was it at first when you started working with with the military? Because you don't. You, I, I I don't think were you weren't coming from anywhere in your family having a military background, right? I mean, my grandfather served in World War II, but not really. No, no military background. Um, and it is funny, you know, when you're on base uh, as a civilian, I get treated very, very well. The politeness is high. Um, ma'am this, ma'am that, you know, eye contact, nod, hold the door, that whole thing. Um, and, you know, one of my first times that I was standing in a classroom in front of soldiers and I was trying to um, teach them how to use some software so they could get some feedback. I couldn't get them to be quiet. It was just classic, which you know, as a teacher, right? You're standing in front of the classroom and you're just like, um, okay, but they're not listening to me. I'm trying to wave my hands. Um, and, uh, uh, a general came in who I'm good friends with to this day, honestly, but that was the first time I met him and he's a real high ranking guy. Um, he's a four star and he comes in and he is sweet as pie to me. And he's like, is there anything else that we can get you? We're just so happy that you're able to join us today. We're so happy to have you here. And I'm like, no, I mean, I, I, they're not, I can't get them to pay attention. And he's just like, okay, don't you worry yourself. And he turns around without breaking a beat, just the expletives fly out of his mouth. Listen up, you blank heads. You better blank and blank, blank. And I was like terrified. The, the voice changed, the tone changed, his face changed. Yeah. But after that, you know, they really did pay attention. <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a lot of my job is, uh, like I said, it, it. I use those writing skills. I, I use my drawing skills. I spend a lot of my day drawing. Um, I use like uh, Adobe's Creative Suite, like Illustrator. Um, I draw out the art of the possible, what, what this tool could look like and how it could be used. I even draw people. I'll sketch people. Like if I'm in a meeting and I just want to remember it, I'll do a quick sketch of someone. Um, it helps me kind of sink it into my mind. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I do a lot of other physical stuff. Like we do gear tests. I'll, I'll design a device and we'll take it back to the soldiers and ask them to beat it up. And I'll design a test where I say, okay, I want you to do this in your tactical gear and this in your, your MOP4, which is like your hazmat nuclear yeah, get up. Um, I want you to do this with night vision goggles. Um, and then I observe, I, I ask them for feedback too. Um, I survey them. I do time tests. I do a B testing, which is tried over here this way, then tried over here this way. And I analyze which one was more successful. Um, but observation is always more valuable than user reported data. This is where my job gets into research and some psychology, right? And there's an old chestnut in my field that we talk about, about the power of observational data versus just asking the users what they want. Um, and that is that if Henry Ford had asked his users, what do they need? They would have simply told him a faster horse. And uh, that goes to kind of explain that it's not enough to just ask people, hey, what do you need? What do you want? We have to observe the root fundamental thing that you're trying to accomplish and then use our skills to try and find a better way. Um, but my job is really fun. You know, I love my job. It's, it's every day is something different. Um, like I said, I get to go out in the field. I get to scramble around in the desert. <laughs> I get to uh, uh, go to different bases and talk to a lot of different people. Um, and it's something different. So, yep. Uh, it's 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 fascinating to me. Um, you know, you talk about all these skills that you you probably you probably don't think that you use 
on a daily basis. But then when you start talking about your career, you think, oh, my gosh, yeah, I do this and I don't think about it. I do this. and I'm, th- I'm not thinking about it. You know, it, it, it's truly unbelievable. And for me, when I'm when you think about and you talk about, um, you know, this observation skills, to me, that's also your artist's eye. At, at play there, you know, artists look at the world a little differently. Um, and <laughs> you probably see things that, you know, maybe a colleague of yours might not see. Uh, and then of course that probably brings help, uh, you know, in the process of redesigning or, or designing in the future. That's just me kind of thinking on, on my feet here as you're telling me the stuff that you do for your work. Um, yeah, but it's fascinating. It, it's really, it's really cool. I want to pivot from professional life because I wanted to ask you this question. I didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> you already, you, you mentioned that you and your husband and your family now live uh, in Pittsburgh in the Squirrel Hill region. Uh, and a couple of years ago, there was a mass shooting at a synagogue close to your house. Uh, and I remember distinctly when that happened, when the news broke, uh, I texted you as soon as I found out where it was to find out, you know, are you okay? How close was, cause I didn't know exactly how close it was to your house. I knew it was the same community. Um, and I imagine there's a lot of people on our, you know, listening to this that maybe remember that story or, um, you know, have a recollection of it, but from your perspective, um, you don't have to go into great detail, but very few of us have luckily come to the, been in a situation where we've had a mass shooting close to home. Can you walk us through that, what what you remember about that day or anything that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, so um, we're just about um, two blocks down from the Tree of Life Synagogue where the shooting occurred. Um, and on that day, the whole family was home. And um, I remember just the the sirens, you know, um, right down from our, our street is the uh, police and fire station as well. So uh, I just remember the kind of launching of the sirens, just so many uh, vehicles screaming down the street um, that immediately, you know, you kind of you, you go out to the news and you try to find out what on earth is going on to see such a such a dramatic response. Um, and we uh, immediately, you know, saw what was going on. And oh, my God, that's really close. And, uh, uh, you know, so got away from the windows just in case kind of that's kind of when you take everyone down to the basement just in case. And uh, just keep reloading those pages to see what's happening. Um, I've had friends and neighbors who were congregants there, and uh, it's been a it's been a really tough journey for the neighborhood. And um, you know, my my kids' first taste of uh, I'm gonna say social justice awareness was that we took them out um, in the days after that uh, in our neighborhood in Squirrel Hill. Uh, folks had organized a a, a walk, right? A, a no hate walk, and a lot of our friends and neighbors were were handing out signs that said, you know, no place for hate. Um, that had the um, Star of David and the heart right on the three rivers, and uh, so we got the kids who my little one was at the time not really much of a walker, honestly, but we we um, went down there and we were keeping our eye on it in case it got rowdy, but it was really peaceful. And there were a lot of other families there, even little ones in strollers. And we walked through Squirrel Hill with a huge, huge group of people. Um, people were singing songs. They were chanting, just holding up their, their signs that the community rejects this. The community rejects this violence. We reject the hatred. We marched past the uh, police station 
and uh, everyone gave the officers who came out to look at the parade a standing ovation, just applause as we walked past because they ran in there, you know, um, and and they went door to door in the neighborhood telling people, you know, to get to safety. It's it's still um, so the the synagogue is not really back to use, but there is some local news that they've uh, got an architect now who specializes in memorializing uh, places that have seen terrible acts of violence and bloodshed. And, and uh, so they're going to be um, rehabilitating the building to be something a little bit different, but special. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that um, you don't need it to happen in your neighborhood to understand how it feels really. It's just as terrible as you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, what do you say? I, I, I remember vividly texting with you that day back and forth and, and, uh, how, how relieved I was when you said, no, we're all home, you know, and, uh, we're safe at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I, 200 miles away, but I was, I felt like I was right there with you guys, like in your house that day. It was, I was, so I'm glad that you shared that story, um, with the listeners. One thing I like to talk to my guests about is what do they like to do in their free time? And I, I, I know one thing that I want to talk to you about. Lauren, can you tell, talk a little bit about your obsession with gardening, please? <laughs> I'm not obsessed. I reject that. Okay, a little, a little. All right. <laughs> so for our listeners, Lauren has Lauren lives in in a city. I mean, the city of Pittsburgh. So it's it's not like she's got as she often says, "I wish I had my back forty that I could just keep planting." <laughs> right. uh, but she doesn't have that luxury. But yeah. um, she's uh, sent uh, me videos and, and photos of her raised beds that she has all over her property and vegetables out the wazoo. Oh, wazoo. Uh, the wazoo. The <laughs> wazoo. So was. Is gardening something that has always been part of your life? Like, did your parents have a vet? Is that something that was instilled oh, yeah. in you at a young age? Oh, yeah. I was down at my grandparents' house in Centerport. I remember picking stuff in the garden with my pop-up and then sitting on the porch with my Nana shelling peas and limas and, and cleaning off the, the day's hall. They had a great big garden. And then uh, my mom, uh, you know, at our house uh, outside of Leesport there, uh, we had a great big garden too. We had the asparagus patch. And some of my earliest memories are just sitting uh, in the garden with her, just helping myself to like tomatoes, carrots, like pretty much what, <laughs> you know, you pull it, you brush the dirt off of it. It's good. Um, yeah, so absolutely that, that, that garden smell and the sunshine. Yeah. So, and that's part of it, trying to give my kids a little bit of that experience. Um, especially because they're not the most, uh, pro vegetable children ever to child. And so, uh, one thing that I have found that really helps is, um, having them involved with the, the growing of the vegetables and especially high drama vegetables like carrots. You know, you don't know what you're going to get. And I let them pull it out and they're like, oh, wow. And I'm like, yes. And you must eat it for dinner. <laughs> yeah, I'll often say, because, uh, well, you know, I, we garden as well here. And, and I'll, I'll tell Estella, Estella likes to go out and help me uh, garden. And uh, then when we're eating, I'll always say, well, now, Estella, don't forget, these are the these are the potatoes that you planted or you helped yes. plant. And it, it totally gives you that buy-in, of course. Um, I don't ever remember my parents talking to me like that. It was just, it, it was like, we got to get out in the garden. You got to do your garden work and then we're going to eat this stuff. It's, there wasn't this like, <laughs> that. that's my memory of it. I don't ever remember my father being like, well, let's go see how big the carrots are. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, whatever works though, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, these kids nowadays live a, a gentle life. <laughs> yeah. I, I always think that one of the funniest things about parenting is twisting your kids' arms to do all the things that you want to do the most, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to sit down to a healthy meal of like, you know, and then I want to take a nap. <laughs> like All the things that they don't want to do, man, I want to do. <laughs> you didn't want to do it when they were, when you were their age either. Though, I so. guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's life coming full circle, I guess. Um, well, Lauren, uh, I just want you to say before we go into the end of the interview, there's one thing I would like you to kind of talk about because you have mentioned about this being, you know, a woman in a man's field. So mm-hmm. one of the things that is continually surprising me as, as a high school teacher is I am slowly having more and more girls going into STEM, STEM education. That's the big topic mm-hmm. right now in, in public okay. ed. Um, as someone that has been in, in the in the STEM field for all of your career now, what is your advice to young girls uh, in regards to, you know, that area, that era of uh, area, excuse me, of learning? You know, that's that's a tough one for me because I, I don't I don't know that I fit well in a classical STEM track. Um because realistically, I, I hate technology. I hate it with a blazing passion. I, I always have. Um, and uh, I'm a total Luddite. If I could cancel the internet, I would. You know that I have like no online presence. I don't use social media. I feel like, sorry, DARPA, it's a failed experiment. We tried it, let's just enough with that. Um, I would work in my garden all day if I could. I hate technology, but that's my motivation it is actually is empathy because uh, technology frequently makes me feel stupid, confused, anxious. I hate it. Um, and so the reason that I love doing what I do uh, is that I hope to save someone else that feeling, especially because my users are in life and death situations and they don't have time to learn software or dork around learning some technology just for technology's sake. Uh, technology needs to serve them. And, and I, I hate technology and so do a lot of my users. Um, so that's my motivation is, is just empathy. And that's a lot of designers bring that to the role. Um, so I don't know that I fit in well in that, that whole STEM thing because I, I hate a lot of it. <laughs> are, are you starting to see more young women coming into the field where yeah, that you're in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I'm on the hiring team for my company. And so we do a lot of outreach. We've had to really try to get more diverse candidates through the door. And, uh, these folks, if we can reach them, if they know about the opportunities with our company, they're incredibly talented. Uh, but it's just a matter of them not knowing and not seeing because so many of these things are networks, right? And so if you have a network of folks that help you find your job, they're probably going to be a lot like you and you're going to be a lot like them. And it's just this snowball. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we work really hard to break that. And we've hired a lot of, a lot more women in the last couple of years than previously. Um, and it's great, honestly, the more diverse our workforce has gotten, the, the better our ideas are really. So it's exciting times. Well, I have two seniors this year that are extremely bright and gifted young women that are both going into uh, th- that field. Uh, and uh, they are so excited about it and can't wait. And I'm really excited for them too, because um, I know they're both going to be very successful. Um, and, you know, I just think back to, you know, when we were kids, I don't think very many girls were ever, not necessarily given the opportunity, but of course, were not encouraged, I don't think, uh, you know, to follow yeah, that kind I of mean- path. 
I, I, I hope for them that they don't have the experience that I have of being uh, quite so much of a minority in their field. I hope for them that they don't have to learn the tips and tricks that, that I've learned um, over the years. Uh, like one of the things that I do on purpose is when I meet a new team or join a new group, um, I swear like a sailor. I, you know, inappropriately at inappropriate times, I will be in a team meeting and everyone's pretty formal and they're introducing me and I will just pop off with the dirtiest language that you can imagine. I've learned that it helps me get accepted on the team um, when they don't have to scrub their own language and they don't have to feel like there's a lady in the room. So I start off by not acting like a lady on purpose. Things like that. I really hope that women in the next generation don't have to learn. <laughs> Although. I'm pretty good at swearing and I don't regret that. <laughs> You've always been good at swearing ever since I know you, Lauren. Thanks, Doug. Uh, <laughs> this is really straining me to not swear right now, but thank you. Well, as soon as we stop recording, you can you can let all the pent up uh, curse words out that you've oh, been yeah. holding back. I'm just going to bring those out to my children like a good mom. Yes. <laughs> well, Lauren, we close every conversation out with 10 quick questions to all of my guests. Uh, okay. And... Uh, I can't wait to hear your answers for these. Are you are you ready? No. You're the first person to say no. I don't care. Right. I'm asking them anyway. Dang. All right. Question number one. What mm. is your morning drink of choice? Coke Zero. Oh, really? No coffee? No tea? No. I, I mostly don't have caffeine. The most caffeine that I have is in the Coke Zero, which is less than coffee and less yeah. than black tea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, this uh, I'm I'm curious about this one for you. Uh, who is a go-to musical artist or group for you? A go-to, um, yeah. the National. I like the National a lot, um, and uh, I like Brandy Carlile a lot. Mm -hmm. um, ooh, that's too hard. I'm all my musical taste is all over the place, but yeah, we'll say uh, that. I was, I was thinking about. I was going to ask you this question, then I forgot. Um, so, if when you're working on a project and mm -hmm. you're you're at like you get like the writer's block. Like you don't know where to go next. What do you, what, what's your go-to routine? Do, do you go for a walk? Do you crank on music? What? Uh, yeah, I, um, both of those things actually simultaneously, we have a really nice trail down by the river. Pittsburgh is blessed with many rivers and I will just go, uh, like do a crazy fast walking with my angry, loud music until something rattles loose. <laughs> Yeah, that works. And if not, you can always sleep on it and come back the next day. Right. There you go. All right. Number three, what is a movie that you can watch over and over again and it never gets old? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this. The six hour BBC version of Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth. Write it down. Watch it immediately. I will not accept any arguments. <laughs> I, I, I have said seen movie. Uh once, oh, once. I'm surprised. Oh no, no, no! I have, I have, I once. have. Yeah, once. I've seen yeah, it I, more than that. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> the full six-hour version, though. You're right. You you, you can't skim. Six hours. Yep, yeah. You can't skim. <laughs> Don't mess around with two hours. Go for six. <laughs> Number four. What is the last thing that you read? Um, I am reading right now. Um, a anthology of Robert Frost's poetry. Robert Frost is probably my favorite poet. Uh, so I go back to his work every now and then. And uh, it's been a challenging year, obviously, for a lot of reasons. Um, and something about 
his outlook on life has really hit harder than it did before. So that's what I'm reading right now is reading through uh, his poetry again. It's it's funny you said that because I found myself in the past year as well going back to classic stuff more than normal. Uh, in fact, a lot of the stuff that I read this year, I hadn't read in 15, 20 years. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's just because I'm older that the lens that I'm looking through, it, th- th- <laughs> that stuff just spoke to me in it, or if it was COVID, you know, and, and going through everything we went through last year. But man, I read some, some throw uh, that I was like, and I didn't really care for in high school that I had sure. to read. And now yeah, I read so it and I was like, if you want to go to your own private pond to get away from COVID. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I think there's something to be said for people who lived a long time ago had this experience and people who lived in the 50s, 60s, 70s and in the modern era didn't. Right. So, um, you know, you you can go back to some of these uh, older works to understand people who 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 knew what we're going through, I guess. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Number five, what is your favorite pizza topping? Mm, Pizza topping. Mm, I'm not really into it. (laughs) <laughs> really you guys arugula arugula well, I will, that's good I pizza i will like drown it with raw arugula you know just like it's pretty gross <laughs> no it's not gross i like arugula that's good that's good uh number six laying on a beach or going for a hike laying on a beach heck yeah i am lazy like it's an art form doug come on now okay <laughs> Fair enough. I, I honestly thought you were going to say going for a hike, but that's okay. Okay. All right. No, no, no. No. If, <laughs> if I can laze, that is option one. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> this is going to be good. I can't wait for this answer. Number seven, you have invited me over for dinner. What are you making? For you? Yeah. My, you told <laughs> I, me, am hey. I, am I happy with you or am I vexed with you? Uh, whatever. You're <laughs> First, first, first course is uh, vexed. Second course is happy. (laughs) Oh man, the vexed course. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I could cook some Pittsburgh food for you, I guess. Uh, Since you you may not be familiar, we could get you some uh, primanis or some pierogies or some of the local specialty. But um, I'm good with vegetables, to be honest. When around the house, Will does the meat cooking, and and I do all the vegetables and the sauces and stuff. So, um, I don't know. We argue about this a lot because he's a recipe follower. He's a very precise man, and I don't hold with recipes. I don't look at them, and I don't I don't trust him. I just I'm an intuitive cook. <laughs> so, so you would get whatever the mood struck me that afternoon with no preparation, no skill, no recipe, and apologies for that. No, that's fine. I'll bring the I'll, I'll bring the drinks, uh, and we'll yeah, sit down to whatever we will sit down to whatever is brought to the table. I'm perfectly fine with that. I am perfectly fine with that. <laughs> ah, good. Uh, number eight. What is a dream vacation destination of yours? Oh man, you know it's funny. Um, so before Will and I had kids, uh, traveling as much as possible was a big focus of our lives. So um, we've been to a lot of different places, um, Nicaragua, Thailand, Morocco, Mexico, Bahamas, Netherlands, Japan, French West Indies, Paris, Egypt, Cambodia, all these places I would love to go back to again. Well, except Egypt, but that's a different story. Um, But I think I would actually go back to Japan. I mean, if if I could go anywhere, uh, I love Japan, man, I could stay there for a long time. Hmm. 
that's on my list of places to go. I haven't been, but uh, it's one that I definitely would, would love to see for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I felt healthy there. I just felt really healthy. Um, you know, sleeping in that tatami kind of mat with the hard beans in it and then waking up and having a uh, breakfast of like miso soup and some like pickled turnips. <laughs> Surprisingly, I felt really great. <laughs> And I really like how the folks in Japan have, um, especially in like the cities like in Tokyo, they've lived together in close quarters for a very long time. And they've kind of made an art form of conscientious public behavior. And I just really appreciate how, um, you know, everyone just walks on the right side of the escalator and, let, and like lets you stand on the left, you know, uh, just without signage. Um, and smokers don't smoke on the sidewalk. They go to a different spot so that you're, the smoke's not all around you and uh, people don't even blow their nose in public. That's considered very gauche. Um, and the bullet trains, like the, the the Shinkansen and the the trains are library quiet and very clean. And I just, oh man, I love it. It was weird, but I was like, oh, my people. <laughs> they may not feel that way. <laughs> Are you blowing your nose and just like walking on no. the wrong side of the street or something? <laughs> but I, I mean, I did, we did stick out there a little bit. I mean, like physically stuck out or taller than the average bear, but um, we, I wanted to get some of those really cool high tops that they have in Tokyo, like really famous kicks. And I went to the first store and the, the guy, you know, because it's part of Japanese culture, not to disappoint visitors and tourists. And so they never want to tell you no. They never want to say, I can't do that for you. They don't want to disappoint. Um, so I you know, had the shoe. Can I have this in my size? And he was so embarrassed. No, I'm sorry. We don't have that. So I go to the second store. Um, same thing. Uh, embarrassed shoe salesman. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. We don't have that. I go to the third store and I'm like, you know what? I feel like I'm not getting the story here. This is the shoe I want. What's the problem? And this poor guy in limited English, looking like he was about to cry, told me that my foot is um, too big for woman, too small for man. And Will still makes fun of me to this day, laughing at me, calling me too big for a woman, too small for a man. So apparently there are shoe sizes for women and then there's a gap and then there are shoe sizes for men. And I am in that gap. And I'm like, dang. So I couldn't so much get shoes in Japan. <laughs> but other than that, it was amazing. <laughs> That's a great story. I got to remember yeah. that. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number nine. What's something you're afraid of? Death. <laughs> did you did you want a softer answer? No, that's fine. That's fine. Also, hills. I really hills scare the bejesus out of me, and I don't like them, and I don't trust them. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that sure beats spiders or snakes as an answer. I'll I tell like you that. Hills. I don't being on hills Doug you know and it's I used to go to San Francisco all the time when I lived out there and it made me nervous and Pittsburgh's got a lot of hills yeah it's it does nice. yeah yeah I think I should be living in Indiana honestly <laughs> I don't like hills <laughs> okay <I don't> like <laughs> all right last question what job other than your current one or one that you've had in the past would you love to have Oh, um, that's an easy one. My dream job is spice merchant. I would travel all over the world. I would meet with people. I would test the spices. I would taste them. I would eat the food. I would drink their wine. And then I would say, yes, this spice is amazing. And I will buy it. 
Come on, that's the best job. Yeah, travel, food. Right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I man, that's a, that's I a great spice. answer. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. So if you know of an opening for a spice merchant, <laughs> I will I will keep my ears open <laughs> for <good>. sure. <laughs> I know a lot of people in a lot of different places, so I'll I'll put some feelers out for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm willing to do it for free, really. <laughs> that'll that'll help, I think, if I let them know that. Perfect. <laughs> well, Lauren, it has been an absolute joy. I'm so grateful that you came on the show. Um, and it's just great, you know, talking with you again. Uh, we've had a long friendship and I hope it's a friendship that'll go a lot more years into the future. Um, but um, you always have been able to make me smile uh, and uh, over the years. Uh, and you did again tonight. Uh, so keep being, you know, even though you're too big for woman, too small for man. <laughs> I really am. You know, Doug, I must like you a lot because, you know, I don't do stuff like this. I've never done a podcast before. And I'm frankly a little concerned about um, fans and throngs of adoring public and whether I'll need security now. Um, you know, I assume that I'll be podcast famous. But um, as soon as yeah. I start getting as soon as I start getting the comments, I will forward <laughs> them on to you. Uh, and then you can you can you can do whatever you need to and take the necessary steps to ensure. I will. It, I will. Ensure your anonymity. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lauren, it's been so great talking to you. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. And I can't wait to talk to you again in the very near future. Thanks, Dougie. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. (music) 